You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Color. This is Lecture 8, given in Dornach on the 21st of February, 1923. It's got a multiple set of titles, which are Answers to Workman's Questions at the Goetheanum, The Two Fundamental Laws of Color Theory in Sunrise and Sunset and the Blue Sky, Health and Illness, in relation to the theory of color. To answer the last question properly, let me say something about the colors and see how we get on. We cannot actually understand the colors if we do not understand the human eye, EYE, for a person perceives colors entirely by means of the eyes. He does not know what other ways he has of perceiving them, for he certainly does not perceive colors only with the eye. Imagine, for example, someone who is blind. A blind person has a different feeling if the room he is in is illuminated or if it is dark. But this is so slight that the blind person does not perceive it. Yet although it is too slight to perceive, it is of tremendous importance to him. Even a blind man could could not live constantly in a cellar he would miss the light. And it makes a difference whether you take a blind man into a bright room with yellow windows or a dark room or even a bright room with blue windows. The colors yellow and blue have a totally different effect on our life forces. But those are things we shall only understand when we know how the eye relates to color. Now from what I have told you before, you may have realized that there are two things in the human being which are of fundamental importance, two things in our whole organism. The first one is our blood, for without blood we should immediately die. We would not be capable of renewing our life each moment, and this has to happen. So if you think the blood out of the body, a person would be a lifeless object. Also, if you think the nerves away, a person could look at things just as he does now, but he would have no consciousness of them. He would not be able to think, feel, or move. So we can say that to be conscious, a person has to have nerves, and to be alive at all, we have to have blood. That is, blood is the organ of life, and the nerves are the organ of consciousness. But every organ possesses nerves and blood and the human eye is basically a whole human being, with nerves and blood, and if you visualize that the eye comes out of the head, here, and there's a drawing, the minute veins spread out in the eye. There are a lot of veins, and there are a lot of nerves. Just as you have nerves and blood in your hand, you have them in your head, too. Now, it is like this in the eye. Bear in mind for a moment that what affects the eye is the illuminated environment. Actually, the easiest way to imagine the environment is when it is illuminated. 
In the daytime, of course, your environment is illuminated, yet it is difficult to form a concept of this fully illuminated environment. You get a true conception of it if you imagine the half-illumined environment in the morning and evening, when you see the reds of sunrise and sunset. The colors of the sunrise and the sunset are particularly instructive. What actually occurs at sunrise and sunset? Imagine you are watching a sunrise. The sun is rising, and as it comes up it cannot shine directly onto you. I am now drawing its course as we see it. Really the earth is moving and the sun standing still, but that doesn't matter. So the sun first of all sends its beams here and then here. If you are standing here when the sun, when the dawn appears, you are not looking at the sun but at the illuminated clouds. There are clouds there and the light is actually on these clouds. Now, gentlemen, what is really happening? It is very instructive. As the sun has not yet quite come up, it is still dark here. It is still dark where you are. And in the distance these clouds are being shone on by the sun. Can we understand it? If you stand there, what you see are the illuminated clouds appearing through the darkness around you. You are seeing light through darkness. So we can say, quote, in the red of the sunrise, and the same applies with the sunset, we are seeing the light through darkness. And the light seen through darkness, as you see at sunrise and sunset, looks red. So we can say that light seen through darkness is red. Close quote. Now I will tell you something else. Imagine the sunrise is over and it is now day, and you can look out into the clear air as we can today. What do you see out there? You see the so-called blue sky. It is not really there, but we see it all the same. Actually, it stretches into all infinity, yet it looks as though it curves round the earth like a blue vault. Why is that? Now you just have to remember what it is like out there in space. It is dark, of course. Cosmic space is dark. The sun only shines on the earth, and because there is air round the earth, the sunbeams get entangled and make it light here, especially when they shine through damp air. But out in space it is dark, absolutely dark. So when you stand there by day, you are looking into the dark, and we ought to see black, really. But you see it blue instead of black, because the atmosphere is illumined by the sun. The air and the water in the air are illumined. Clearly you are seeing darkness through light. You look through the light, through illumination into darkness. So we can say, darkness through blue is light. These are the two fundamental laws of color theory, which you can simply see in your surroundings. When you understand the sunrise and sunset colors properly, you realize that light, seen through darkness, is red. When you look up into the black sky by day, you realize that darkness seen through light, the illuminated atmosphere, is blue. You know, people always looked at things in this natural way until they became, in quotes, clever. In olden times, the peoples over in Asia knew that light through darkness was red and darkness through light was blue when they were as clever as I described to you recently. The ancient Greeks knew it too. And people knew it throughout the whole of the Middle Ages, right up to the time when people became clever, 
round about the 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. And when they grew clever, they gradually stopped relying on nature and began thinking out all kinds of artificial sciences. One of the people who thought out a particularly artificial science of color was the Englishman Newton. Out of his very cleverness, and you will know that I am now using the word absolutely seriously, Newton said something like this, quote, Let us look at the rainbow. Close quote. For if you are clever, you don't look at natural things, do you, like the sunrise and sunset, which appear every day. No, when you become clever, you look at what is especially rare, which you will be capable of understanding only when you have made more progress. Nevertheless, Newton said, let us look at the rainbow. You see seven colors in the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. There are seven colors in a row, and a drawing was done. If you look at the rainbow, you can easily distinguish these seven colors. Then Newton made an artificial rainbow by darkening his room and covering up the window with black paper in which he had cut a small hole. He thus had a small slit of light. Then he put what we call a prism in this slit of light, a piece of glass which looks like this, a three-cornered piece of glass, and behind it he put up a screen. So he had the window there with the hole in it, the small stream of light, the prism, and the screen behind it. The rainbow did appear, too. All these colors appeared, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. What conclusion did Newton come to? He said, quote, The white light comes in here, and the prism gives me the seven colors of the rainbow. Therefore, the seven colors of the rainbow are in the white light, and all I have to do is coax them out. Close quote. This is the, that is the simplest kind of explanation. You explain something by saying that it is already within the thing you get it from. In actual fact, he ought to have said, quote, Because I am not using a flat sheet of glass, but am putting a prism in front of the screen, that is a piece of glass with sides which slope sharply toward each other, when I look into it I see light on one side being turned red by darkness, and the color red appears and on the other side darkness being turned blue by light, and the color blue appears. In between there are just gradations. Close quote. This is what he ought to have said. But the kind of thing that was happening in the world at that time was that people were trying to explain everything by looking for all the explanations within the thing itself. That is the easiest way of all, isn't it? If, for instance, you want to explain where a human being comes from, you say, quote, he is already in his mother's egg and develops out of that, close quote. That is a fine explanation. If you say, uh, readers aside, and there's a gap in the text here. End of readers aside. We have a harder time of it. We need the help of the whole cosmic space to develop the mother's egg. But natural science is out to look for everything. Readers aside, again, there's a gap in the text. End of readers aside. Thus Newton said, quote, The sun contains all the colors. We just have to get them out. Close quote. But it is not like that at all. For the sun to produce red, when it rises, it first has to shine on the clouds. And we have to see the red through darkness. For the sky to appear blue, it is not from the sun at all. 
for the sun does not shine out there. Out there it is black, quite dark, and we see the blue through the illuminated earth's atmosphere. We are in fact seeing darkness through light equals blue. What this amounts to is that we ought to create a proper physics where people could see, as with the prism, that light can be seen through darkness on the one hand and darkness through light on the other. But people find that too uncomfortable. What they like best is to hear people say, quote, everything is there in the light and we just get it out, close quote. Then they can also say, quote, the world once contained a gigantic egg and the whole world was inside it and we get everything out of that, close quote. That is what Newton did with colors. However, in actual fact, we can always see the secret of the colors when we understand the colors of the sunrise and the blue sky property. Now we have to go on and look at the whole thing in relation to our eye, E-Y-E, in fact, in relation to our whole organism. You all know that there is a creature which becomes especially wild under the influence of red, that is, where light is seen through darkness, and that is the bull. It is well known that red makes the bull quite wild. This is the one direction. And human beings also have a little bit of the bull nature. It does not make us go wild, yet you will notice at once that a person will get a little emotional if he is constantly exposed to red light. He gets a little bit bull-like. I have even known poets who could not write poetry in their ordinary bodily condition. They always had to be in a room where they could put a red cover over the light. Then they became emotional and could write poetry. Now the bull goes wild. A human being can even become poetic if he exposes himself to red. It just depends whether you enliven yourself for writing poetry from inside or outside. This is the one direction. In the other direction, you will be aware of this, when certain people who know of these things want to use them on other people who do not know of them, they use blue or black to make them especially tractable and really meek. For instance, when Advent arrives in the Catholic Church and the people should become humble, blue is used in church, particularly for the vestments, and that people grow tractable and humble. A person has the feeling of sharing the mood of humility. Especially when a person has his fling first like a bull, as they do at carnival time, when this is then followed by the proper period of fasting, with not only dark vestments but actually black ones, a person then grows tractable after his romping. And when there have been two carnival Sundays, the period of fasting ought to be doubled. I don't know whether that happens. But you will see from this that it has quite a different effect on a person if he perceives light through darkness as red or darkness through light as blue. Now look at the eye. It has both nerves and blood in it. When the eye looks at red, the sun at the sunrise or anything else red, what happens to it? The red light goes into these very delicate veins. And this red light has the property that it always slightly destroys the blood. It destroys the nerve too, for the nerve cannot live unless it has its blood. When the eye confronts red and the red enters it, the blood in the eye is slightly destroyed and the nerve destroyed with it. 
When the bull confronts Red, he simply feels, quote, dash it all, all the blood in my head is being destroyed. I must defend myself, close quote. So he goes wild because he doesn't want to have his blood destroyed. This may not be the best thing for the bull, yet when it happens to human beings and other animals, it is a very good thing. For when we look at red and our blood gets slightly destroyed, our whole body rallies to send more oxygen into the eye to restore the blood. Just think what a wonderful process that is. When we see red light through darkness, blood is destroyed, oxygen is drawn from the body, and the eyes revived. And we know the moment our eyes revived that red is out there. But in order to be able to perceive it, the blood in our eye must first of all be slightly destroyed and the nerve as well. Then we have to send life into the eye, which means sending oxygen into it. And through the process of revival in our own eye, we notice the red outside. Now, actually, man's health depends on his perceiving reddened light in the proper way and always assimilating it properly. For the oxygen drawn from the body enlivens the whole of the body and man himself acquires a healthy complexion. He can restore himself. This is not only the case with people who have healthy eyes and can see, but also with those whose eyes do not function properly and who cannot see. For the light works through light colors, and the person is stimulated in the head, and this stimulus works back on the whole organism and gives him a healthy complexion. So we live in the light and can assimilate the light properly. Excuse me. So if we live in the light and can assimilate the light properly, we acquire a healthy color. Therefore, it is very important that a person does not grow up in dark rooms where he could become lifeless and meek but rather in light rooms with a reddish or yellowish color, where, with the help of the light, he can properly assimilate the oxygen within him. You see from this that everything to do with red is connected in man with the formation of blood. The nerve is actually destroyed when we perceive red. Now imagine we are looking at darkness through light at blue. The darkness does not destroy our blood so it does not destroy the nerve either, because its blood supply is unaffected. This leads to a real feeling of inner well-being. A person feels really well inside because blue attacks neither the blood nor the nerve. Now there is something rather crafty about the way they make people humble. When the priests are up at the altar in their blue or black vestments and the people are sitting below, the veins and the nerves of the eye are not destroyed, however much they look at the vestments. And this, of course, makes them feel frightfully good inside. This feeling of well-being in the people is actually what is intended. Don't imagine they do not know it, for they still possess the old knowledge. New science arose among enlightened people, enlightened people like Newton. So we can say that blue gives people a feeling of inner comfort, which makes them say, albeit unconsciously, but inside them they do say, I can be at ease in blue. A person feels rich in his inner life, whilst with red he feels as though something were invading him. In the case of blue, one could say, quote, The nerve is not destroyed and the body sends its feeling of well-being into the eye and from there into the whole body. 
close quote. Actually, that is the difference between the blue colors and the red colors. Yellow is just a gradation of red and green a gradation of blue. So one can say, according to whether the nerves or the blood are active in a person, he will be more sensitive to red or to blue. Now, this can be applied to pigments. If I want to make a proper red for painting with, I must make one which contains substances that stimulate a person to develop oxygen within him. And one arrives at the fact that one obtains a red color suitable for painting if one tests substances of the outer world for their carbon content. If I use carbon combined in the right way with other substances, I shall discover how to make my red paint. If I use plants for making paints, the most important thing is that my procedure of chopping, burning, etc. produces the proper carbon content. If I get this right, I shall have a bright shade of red. On the other hand, if I have substances with a large oxygen content, not carbon but oxygen, if I succeed in having oxygen in them as oxygen, I get the darker colors, like blue. If I recognize what lives in plants, I can really produce my colors from these. Imagine I take a sunflower. It is absolutely yellow, so it has a light color. Yellow is close to red. Light seen through darkness. If I treat a sunflower so that I bring the right blossom process into my paint, I shall get a good yellow color, which compares well with the light outside. For the blossom of the sunflower stole the secret of creating yellow from the sun itself. If I take the process which is in the blossom of the sunflower and put this into my paint properly, I can lay on a good wash of yellow, provided I get it thick enough. If I take another flower, though, chicory, for instance, which has blue blossoms, a blue flower growing by the wayside, and it grows in this area too, if I take this flower and try to make paint from its blossom, I cannot do it. I get nothing from it. But if I handle the root in the right way, I do get something. The process which makes the blossom blue is in the root. If the blossom is yellow, the process which makes it yellow goes on in the blossom itself. However, if the blossom is blue, the process is in the root, and it just pushes its way up toward the blossom. So if I want to produce a blue paint from the indigo plant, where I get a darker blue, or chicory, this blue flower, I must use the root. I have to work on them chemically until they produce the color blue. By means of a real study of this kind, I can arrive at a way of making paints out of plants. If I went Newton's way, I could not do so, for he simply says, quote, It's all in the sunlight and I just have to get it out. Close quote. The only thing this could possibly apply to is my wallet. In the morning it must contain all my day's spendings. These very clever people imagine a bag that has everything in it. But it is not like that. We have to know, for example, how the yellow works in the sunflower or the dandelion. We have to know how the blue works in the chicory. The processes which make chicory or indigo blue are found in the root, whereas the processes which make the sunflower or dandelion yellow are found in the blossom. I must bring chemistry alive and copy the blossom process in the plant. 
that I shall get a light color. I must copy the root process in the plant if I want to get a dark color. Actually, what I have just been telling you can be found by real human common sense understanding, whereas this business of the rainbow and its seven colors is fundamentally unreal. Now, the situation, historically, was that in Goethe's time everyone believed Newton's theory of the sun as a large sack with all the so-called seven colors inside it. One only has to tickle them out and there they are. Everyone believed this. It was taught in those days and still is today. Now, Goethe did not like having to take everything on belief and he wanted to convince himself a little bit regarding the particular matters that were being taught everywhere. People usually say they have no faith in authority. But when it comes to believing what science says, people have tremendous faith in authority as a matter of course and believe all they are told. Goethe did not want to take it all on faith, so he borrowed the apparatus to prove it with a prism and such things from the Jena University, with the intention of doing the experiments the professors did and finding out what would actually happen. Now, Goethe did not get around to it immediately and kept the apparatus quite a long time without using it. He was busy with other things. And Privy Councillor Bittner grew impatient because he needed the things again, so he sent to have them returned. Then Goethe said to himself, quote, I must hurry up and use them, close quote, and while he was packing them up, he had a look through the prism. He expected the white wall to be covered with beautiful rainbows, and instead of white he would see red, yellow, green, and so on. And he looked forward to all the colors he would see when he peered into it, but he saw nothing at all. The wall was as white as before. This was a tremendous surprise, of course, and he wondered what it meant. Actually, his whole color theory arose from this. He told himself, quote, The whole matter has to be checked all over again. The people of olden times said that light seen through darkness equals red, darkness through light equals blue. If I graduate the red a little, I shall get yellow, and I can increase the blue on the red side. Thus blue becomes green in one direction and violet in the other. Those are gradations. Quote. And so he developed his theory of color, which was even better than the one which existed in the Middle Ages. So nowadays we have the physicist's color theory of color, with a sack from which the seven colors come being taught everywhere. And we also have the Gertian theory of color, which contains a proper understanding of the blue sky and the reds of sunrise and sunset, as I have just been telling you. But there is a certain difference between Newton's theory of color and Goethe's. Other people do not notice this to start with, for they admire the physicists. They are taught Newton's theory of color, which is in all the books. They can imagine very cleverly how all the colors appear in the rainbow, but in actual fact a prism is not there. But they do not think any further. Readers aside, there's a gap in the text. End of readers aside. The Newtonians do, do know, but they will not come to terms with it. For when you look through the rain on one side, you see darkness through the sun-illumined rain. And on that side, you see the blue. Then you also see the surface in front where you see light through darkness. And on the other side, you see the red. 
You must explain everything according to the basic principle that light through darkness is red and darkness through light is blue. But as we said, on the one hand, people see the physicists giving them all the explanations, while on the other hand they look at paintings where the colors are applied. But they do not think of reconciling the two and asking questions about a particular red or yellow, etc. Actually, gentlemen, the artist must reconcile these two aspects. If you want to paint, you have to do so. You must not only know there is a sack with all the colors in it, because the sack just isn't there. You have to get the right substance from the living plant or some other living material, so that you can mix your colors properly. Nowadays, artists really cogitate on these matters, though there are some who don't, but just go and buy their paints. However, the artists who think about the way colors should be obtained and the way they should be applied say, quote, we can do something with co- Goethe's theory of color. It means something to us. We artists cannot do anything with Newton's physicist's theory of color, close quote. As I say, the public does not compare art with the physicist's color theory, but artists do. And that is why they love Goethe's color theory. Artists say, quote, Good gracious, we are not going to take any notice of the physicists. They speak professionally. They can do what they like. We are going to stick to the old color theory and the Goethean one. Close quote. It is just that artists see themselves strictly as artists and do not see why they should interfere in the theories of the physicists. They would also be unpleasant. That would also be unpleasant for them. They would meet with opposition, and so on. This is how matters stand between what it says in books about the theory of color and the truth. It was simply to defend truth that Goethe rebelled against Newton and the whole of modern physics. And one really cannot understand nature without coming round to Goethe's theory of color. So it is quite natural that in a place such as the Goetheanum we defend Goethe's theory of color. But if you don't just remain in the religious or moral sphere, but start putting a spoke in the wheels of the various domains of physics, you will soon have all the physicists yapping at your heels. You will then see how extraordinarily difficult it is nowadays to defend truth. But you really ought to hear in what a complicated way modern physicists explain the blue of the sky. Obviously, if I start from a false principle... I have to give a terribly complicated explanation simply to explain why the blackness of space appears blue through light and just what they say about the colors of sunrise and sunset. This chapter usually begins with the words, To this very day we still cannot properly explain why the sky is blue, although we can imagine one thing and another. In fact, despite all the physicists' business with their little hole which amused Goethe so much, and which was meant to let light into the room so that they could investigate the light in the darkness, despite all this, they cannot explain the simplest things. And so it reaches the point where people do not understand color at all anymore. If we grasp that the destruction of the blood, and particularly its restoration, Readers aside, there is a gap in the text, and the readers aside. For if I have blood in me, 
which the light has destroyed, I summon all the oxygen within me and revive myself, and this is how man's health arises. If I constantly have darkness round me or shades of blue, I will constantly want to enliven myself, and I will enliven myself too much, which will make me pale, because I will be imbibing too much life. Thus, on the one hand, we can understand that a person's healthy color comes from the oxygen he takes in when he exposes himself properly to light, and we can understand the paleness, that paleness comes from a constant intake of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, the opposite of oxygen, wants to enter my head, and this makes me really pale. Nowadays, nearly all the children in Germany are pale. We must understand this as being caused by too much carbon dioxide. And if a person develops too much carbon dioxide, which consists of a combination of carbon and oxygen, it is because he is using too much of the carbon within him to create carbon dioxide. Pale children are constantly transforming all their carbon content into carbon dioxide. This is what makes them pale. What can we do about it? We must give them something to help them hold on to the carbon and prevent the perpetual production of carbon dioxide. I can do this by giving them some calcium carbonate. This stimulates the functions again, as I described from an entirely different point of view, and a person keeps the oxygen he needs instead of constantly changing it into carbon dioxide. Through the fact that carbon dioxide consists of carbon and oxygen, the carbon goes up to the head and, deliv- and enlivens the head processes, the life processes. If the oxygen is drawn into becoming carbon dioxide, this suppresses the life processes. If, for instance, I take a pale person to a region where he gets a lot of light, he will be stimulated and stop turning his carbon content into carbon dioxide because the light sucks up the oxygen into his head he will then acquire a healthier color. I can also stimulate this process by means of calcium carbonate, which preserves the oxygen so that it can be made use of in other ways. Everything has to become interrelated. The theory of color must help you understand health and illness. Only Goethe's theory of color can do this, because it is a natural part of nature, not Newton's theory of color, which was simply invented and is alien to nature, and cannot explain the simplest phenomena of sunrise and sunset colors and the blue sky. Now, I should like to tell you something else. Think of the old nomadic tribes who drove their flocks out to pasture and slept in the open. While they were asleep, the sky above them was not even blue, but dark, and up there are the innumerable twinkling stars. Now imagine the dark sky, with the countless stars twinkling above and someone asleep below. From the dark sky, the calming down process works on the person, the inner comfort of sleep. The whole of his being is saturated by the darkness and he becomes inwardly calm. Sleep comes from darkness. Yet these stars shine on the sleeper. And wherever a ray of sunlight touches him, he becomes inwardly a little stimulated. His body gives forth a ray of oxygen. Rays of oxygen stream toward all the rays of starlight. 
and the person is inwardly saturated by these oxygen rays, and he becomes, within, an oxygen mirror of the whole starry sky. These old nomads took the whole starry sky into their calm bodies in a pictorial way, in pictures which were inscribed in them by the oxygen process. Then they awoke, and they had the dream of these pictures, and from this they had their science of the stars from which they developed their wonderful astronomy. They did not dream it in such a way that the ram simply consisted of so and so many stars, but they really saw the ram as an animal, and the bull, and so on, and felt the whole sky of stars inwardly in pictures. The poetic wisdom handed down to us from the ancient nomads often contains a tremendous amount and can still be very instructive today. And we can understand it when we know, in man, every time a ray of starlight touches him, he rays back a beam of oxygen. He himself becomes a heaven, an inner oxygen heaven. And man's inner life is, of course, a life in the astral body, for in sleep he experiences the whole heavens. It would be the worse for us if we were not descendants of these ancient nomads. In fact, everyone is descended from ancient nomadic peoples. Purely through heredity we still have knowledge of an inner sky of stars. It still happens to us, though not as well as it did to the old nomads. And whilst we are asleep in bed we still have a memory of how the old shepherds used to lie in the field and absorb oxygen. We are no longer shepherds. But we have inherited something, and still have it, though we cannot express it so well, for it has become dim and faded. But the whole of mankind, after all, belongs together as one whole. And if we want to know and recognize what man still has within him, we must go back to ancient times. The whole of mankind on earth started out from this nomadic stage, and our bodies have all inherited what could be passed down from these nomadic peoples. The end of Lecture 8